to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense, from culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses and more importantly the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. This week's guest has a brilliant way of describing his striking career change in 2008 when he went from birdless flight to flightless birds. Let me explain. For more than a decade, Ben Jackson had been the MD of the London Beach Store, a business he loved, because it focused on his fascination for kite surfing, which had begun when he was just three years old. Then, just over a decade ago, he got involved in running his family farm, and has never looked back. Fluffitz specialises in what he calls genuinely free-range eggs, and Ben has built up encyclopedic knowledge about every aspect of hen behaviour and egg-laying. For instance, the pecking order really does exist, and most flocks have a hardcore escape committee. Birds who work out how to fly over any barrier and into the woods, never to return. And if you've ever wondered, and of course how can you not have, why egg yolks vary in colour from pale yellow to orange, or why the shells of larger eggs tend to be more brittle than those of smaller ones, then Ben has the answers, and some of them will make your mind boggle. I've wanted to dive deep into eggs for a long time. We consume millions of them a day across the country, but with battery farming, organic and free range, I think there's a great deal of confusion around such an everyday product. So it's time to get myth-busting and get some actual facts, and I very much hope you enjoy this week's conversation. Ben Jackson from Fluffett's Farm, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. Very much appreciated. Can you just explain to people listening where on planet Earth are we, Ben? Uh, we are there. Where are we? We're in the Avon Valley, just uh, west of Ringwood. And uh, yeah, we're west of the New Forest here. And uh, just sitting in uh, in our kitchen. In your kitchen, yeah, very nice. Thank you for getting we, us out because, unfortunately, we were going to do this with the hens, I think, weren't we? But yeah, we, 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 we had a romantic vision of uh, sitting in your uh, Land Rover with the hens clucking about us, but uh, unfortunately it's... Uh, Another stormy, wet afternoon. It and, is, uh, yeah. I've just driven we, through uh, the monsoon to get here. It's shocking. <laughs> we've gone go for the more comfortable options. Yeah, yeah. but thank you for uh, for opening up your house to me. Much appreciated. Oh, thank, thank you yeah. very much for so, taking the time. Yeah. No, I'm excited. I've, I, there's a couple of things that I keep banging on about and uh, that I've wanted to, to kind of get my heads around. Um, one was bees because I just, you know, you hear all this stuff about, uh, you know, lack of pollinating insects and what's going on and, and yeah, they're so yeah. important in the food supply chain. And the other one is eggs. And I think it's because you know eggs, eggs is a bit confusing as a consumer because you've got you know free range you've got uh red tractor you've got i don't know yeah happy eggs you've got barn and we yet we all pretty much all eat them i think you were saying before 40 million 
eggs a day or something. Yeah, it's, it's average of just over half an egg per head per day for the UK. I yeah, think. so, so are. You, you are now the you know my designated egg expert, and I am here to learn and uh, all about how it works. And I know you've listened to some episodes, so you know I like. To oh yes, I'm a, I'm a fan of humans of hospitality. Thank being, you being a... so much. <laughs> so um, I'm going to start with a slightly cliched question, but it's going to lead into kind of you know normal flock sizes and stuff like that. But can you just explain a little bit about how many hens do you actually have and how many eggs do you produce as Ben? the fluffer egg man okay well when when all four of our flocks are laying we're producing uh, about a thousand dozen a day and that that's from thirteen thousand hens and they're they're, they're in there's three houses that hold three thousand and then another house that holds four thousand birds and everyone always thinks that's gosh that's a, a lot of chickens but it's actually pretty small scale by today's standards when you think back when we started 20 years ago producing eggs, we had two houses of, of 8,000, so 16,000 birds. We, we're still smaller than we were 20 years ago. <laughs> and, you know, the, the typical sort of farm size for a supermarket contract these days is between 30 and 60,000, and that's free-range hens. Yeah. Cage hens, you might have as many, well, hundred, literally hundreds of thousands of, of hens in a single building. Yeah, you said so. You can you can literally get one kind of uh, warehouse, we call it, with four hundred thousand. Yeah, and that, that that's not the biggest u- unit. That's just it, mind blowing, uh, isn't it? I, I, I think there's well one actually that's on. I think it's for sale up, up um, you know, in, in Wiltshire somewhere. I saw the other day, and I think that's got getting getting on for a million hens. Wow, you tempted on and and it just, it's a pretty you know, the farm itself would probably be less acres than you know the, the thirty acres that we have our hands on. So. Wow. Okay. So you're very much free range. So although you've got up to thirteen thousand, they're kept in how many is in each? Is it a flock? Yeah, we call them a flock. Right. So there's there's three flocks which have three three thousand in the house. One's slightly bigger. It's about three thousand three hundred, uh, and then the other house holds four thousand. Okay. And, and then is this is this a fairly big kind of uh, what do they get the house you called it so yeah so they've got plenty of space in there what what is it that designates is there is there one level down from free, we've obviously got battery and you've got free range is there a, is there a level in between that as well or? well the, the popular system in 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 Holland which we don't have so much of here is the barn system and it's the same stocking density so nine birds per square meter and that that changed in 2012 from. 12 birds per square meter before. Right. Uh, so it's nine, nine birds per square meter. And the barn system would be the same as the free range on the inside, but with no access to the outdoors. Right. Though some barn producers do have a very small sort of outdoor veranda area yeah. for the hens to sort of just go outside in a limited way. Yeah. So we're straight into one of the things that I kind of, I suppose I, I hear is that when free range eggs are produced on a mass scale, that there's this technical kind of aspect that there might be access to the outdoors, as in at one end of the house, there's a little door and they could go outside if they wanted. But in reality, it's pretty unreal, unrealistic because it's either a small amount of space or there's not enough room outside or they're just not interested. Is is that true? Sure. I mean, with, with our type of system, we're able to you know spend a lot of time with with the hens from the day they arrive on on, on the farm and we, we we sort of as we allow them to to sort of feel their way into the out, out, outdoors we, we're encouraging them to go out, out outdoors and we'll initially give them a limited um access to the outdoor area and they'll they'll sort of find their feet and and when when you sort of train them from day one to be you know 
relaxed, happy sort of, you know, not just the, the, the hens, if you find that if you can really sort of spend time with them, they, they learn the confidence to sort of go out and spend time outdoors. And it, I think that's very difficult when you've got just sort of one person looking after 16,000 or more hens to actually sort of spend that time with the birds to give them that sort of character that they want to go outdoors and spend time outdoors. But there's a, there is also a, there's an aspect to the fact that the, the, the big systems, the dominant birds tend to sort of guard the doors to the outside and control the access to the outdoors. And, and the less dominant ones tend to sort of disappear into the rafters of the building and form their own little sort of colonies Wow, really? That sounds like the sort of school playground kind of thing. Well, everyone knows the pecking order and the idea of the pecking order, and it's a very real thing. And uh, so, how how do you manage that? How do you stop a bully on the gate? Um, Well, we have lots of things for the hens to peck at, and things for them to to perch on, and and we have sort of swings in their scratch area, which uh, you know, I, I think the more you can sort of you know give give them plenty of distraction it's like small children they you know unless they if unless you sort of if then they're sort of crying and in a tantrum you need to distract them and then they're, they're fine <laughs> so when i um was chatting to tom from open air dairy and i'm yeah. we chatting about that earlier and he said that you know there's sort of a natural pecking order even with the cows that they, oh, kind yeah. of, they, they go through the, the milking parlor yeah, in, in their own sort of uh system is it the same if, if do most of the birds come outside at some point and do they tend to come outside in kind of groups or with their buddies or you know with, yeah i mean with you know with three or four thousand birds it's obviously hard to say this one's been out and this one hasn't. But um, there's, there's a couple of things that, I mean, if, if you're if it's a very wet day like this and it's been wet and you've come in and you see that virtually all the birds are wet, you know that they've all come in as the rain came. The the other thing that is maybe not sort of so well known is is the comb. So the comb of the bird will be nice and red if it spends plenty of time outdoors. So it's like you or I having a suntan. So the red, if you look around our hens, they've all got nice red combs because they generally spend a lot of time outdoors. But there will be the odd one with a pale comb. And it, you know, it's rather like the analogy I think of is, is you, you get people who make the trip down to the New Forest and they've got 50 square miles of amazing woods and tracks and yet they have their picnic in the lay-by and then go home. There's, there's people who just, or even animals that are less adventurous by their very nature and, and they don't sort of want to be as adventurous. So, yeah, no, I mean, it makes, makes perfect sense that there'd be some special on a day like today where you'd just be cosy sat at the back. Will they, in weather like this, will they automatically just not go out? Are they like a cat where they just sort of look out so, and go so, sod so, that? Some will go out, but they, they won't spend a lot of time outdoors when, it, when it's really stormy, but uh, it, it, it's rare that you get a day when it, just rains all day long though it might seem like it with the the weather we've had lately okay i guess the reason i'm asking this particular line is that i've never really understood you know yet does a hen actually want to go outdoors so this this thing yeah this hypothetical situation where we you know we have a we have a door at the end it can go outside if it wants to if you know if they don't want to not necessarily relevant but if they do want to then it feels like we should create the kind of environment where they can i mean they're the proof that we see pretty much every day is when, when we open up what we call the pop holes to allow the hens to go outside, they'll come rushing out. It's sort of like um, opening a dam, right. particularly you know, if it's a beautiful sort of summer's morning when you know, we'll tend to try and let them out sort of 
half seven eight o'clock in, in the morning and they will all come piling out and right. uh, you only have to sort of witness that once to be completely reassured that uh, free range is a better system yeah you, you just sort of see that you know that animal sort of joy and going out into the sunlight and then there'll be a fight over a worm or because they all know that when they first come out that's when the best sort of pickings are out there and uh, that makes sense. Yeah. and then you've also got there's often a sort of gang of the real sort of hardcore ones that are going to just fly over the fence and disappear into the wood the sort of what we call like the escape committee really? <laughs> yeah they do that <laughs> yeah. Does, does, how often always, does that happen yeah, my, my, you know, most most flocks we we have a what we call an escape committee of probably sort of a dozen birds that have sussed out how to get over the fence and they just disappear. Really, and you know, they they are the sort of you know extreme sports people of wow. the hen. Wow, I've got so much more respect for hens now. There's <laughs> yeah. the bullies, there's the escape artists, there's yeah. the recluse, there's yeah. the stay indoors, there's the sunbathe, yeah. there's the uh, yeah the worm snappers. And uh, you yeah. see them, I mean, the, I saw this BBC thing a while ago, which was explaining how the, the hens are one of the few sort of living relatives of the T-Rex. And, uh, it, you know, it just makes total sense that these are little sort of dinosaurs, really, that they just sort of want to, you know, get out there and sort of rampage sometimes. Cause, <laughs> cause carnage. If, if they were bigger than they are, I think we'd be running from them. <laughs> <laughs> and am I right to be slightly sort of cynical that that the kind of, you know, we, we have this thing, we want to get rid of with a battery, and then all of a sudden there's this sort of hugely produced free range. Am I right in saying that, you know, it is it can be a box-ticking exercise where you can say, right, there is a, you know, there is a door at the end and they can theoretically get out, but in reality don't. Is that true? Or actually, if you see free I, I, range... Can yeah, you... I mean, I, I'm a, I, I, think, I think it is. I mean, not, you know, I, I think it's, it, it's a better system than just locking them up in cages, but... It is what we, what I would call that sort of large scale mass free range is, is like a sort of intensive free range or a factory free range. So, whereas we're trying to sort of do an authentic sort of traditional free free range, mm. and I, I think you know you, you you've got to sort of put it in perspective. In in if you can buy a half a dozen free range eggs now for a, a pound, then they're not going to be produced to the same level that a small scale farmer like. Like we we would do it. Yeah. It's, uh, so I, I feel for the consumer because you know it makes it really challenging for them to know yeah. what's an acceptable purchase point, I suppose. And how do we get around that? Is it should there be another category or like because when you go to a supermarket, you don't sort of see you know average free range, good free range. You see sort of you know free range or not free range. Is it a case that you 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 know to really get this right, you'd have to go to your local deli or local farm shop or something? Yeah, I mean the the chap that I think we talked about the chap who um, started the. Um, traditional egg company that was an attempt to be a, a large-scale egg company that was just um, selling free-range eggs rather than the cage eggs and the barn eggs as well. And he, he was trying to create a new category whereby um, his, his slogan was no multi-tier here. And the multi-tier is the big free-range unit where you've got your sixteen to 30,000 birds in one house. And he he got a lot of flat back from people in in industry who felt that he was somehow sort of devaluing the whole brand of free range and i think it, you know it, it it's a difficult one because you know a lot a lot of farmers they 
they get free range hens as we did 20 years ago because the farm is, is struggling to find a profitable thing. They, they see a market that's growing and you, you talk to a company that in our case was a company that was a franchise that set farmers up to produce eggs for supermarkets. And they say, yeah, this, this is a good way to add a lot of value to your land. You won't make a great deal of money selling the eggs. You will make a bit of money selling them at the farm gate to local people. But essentially, you'll break even on the eggs, but you'll create a, a whole new sort of thing on your farm, which you can get planning permission for a house. And maybe now they also say you can get solar panels. And, and you know, it's a new... And, and the, the other thing that's being promoted now which wasn't the case then was that these big units can produce lots of valuable manure mm. which if you're an arable farmer and you're looking for an alternative to chemical fertilizers then hen manure is a very valuable resource and you can look at the economics and say okay I'm not going to get a great I'm probably not going to get any profit at all for producing these eggs but that manure is really valuable for my crops so wow yeah. <laughs> complicated as these things uh, always are so you um you don't supply the supermarkets you mainly supply uh is it restaurants and bars it, it, direct independent or? shops locally restaurants and uh, ho- hotels cafes um our biggest customer single customer is actually hampshire county council the uh, school eggs the hampshire school eggs so really? that was a big game changer for us beginning back in sort of 2008 when uh, they had a sort of visionary sort of program to start using local free-range eggs initially in sort of half a dozen schools in the Southampton area. And um, we, we were chosen through Hampshire Fair, yeah. um, being long-term, well, prior to that, we were New Forest Mark members. New Forest Mark sort of brought us to the attention of Hampshire Fair, Hampshire Fair then brought us to the attention of um, Hampshire Catering Supplies. And they said, we want to try using free-range eggs rather than we, they were... Well, I think they might have had a mix of eggs before that, which came from sort of, I think, the difference in food miles. They were saving 400 food miles using our eggs as opposed to the previous eggs they used that came from somewhere in the east of the country. Right. And the Hampshire School thing we still do to this day, and it's grown from couple of dozen schools to about 350 schools across Hampshire, South Wiltshire, East Dorset and East Sussex and then maybe into Berkshire as well, wow. I think. That's uh, amazing. You don't deliver those. You, that's oh, no. a, we, that, we, we work through their um, contract supplier, which is Bid Food. Okay. Yeah. In, and that's just up the road from our packing station in, in Downton. So we deliver two or three times a week into there. Okay. I didn't know that, yeah, you know, things of your kind of a niche and quality, I suppose, were available through, yeah, some of the mass suppliers like Bid Food. I'd always imagined they were sort of, you know, only working with the bigger guys, but it's nice well, to Well, I mean, Bid, Bid Food allow with their, they have an arrangement with Hampshire County Council supplies or catering supplies whereby they can have a small group of local suppliers that they use. Um, and we're one of those local suppliers that they use and then, Obviously, the rest they have to buy off list from from the bid food list of, of, of available products. Nice. Okay, we'll come back a little bit more to the business, but I want to carry on with the with the chickens a little bit more before yeah, we do. Yeah. Um, what do they eat? And when you you mentioned worms, so when they come outside, they can in essence <laughs> are they are they foraging or are you lobbing worms over the no no over they, the, they, they, the they'll fence, just or? I mean they'll they'll go for any sort of extra protein that they can 
get their beaks into. Right, but that's just naturally there. Yeah, yeah. And then they'll, I mean, they'll they'll strip all, all the grass in the immediate vicinity of of the house. So, one of the reasons we we have a system whereby we move our hen house each between each flock so that we can then reseed the the grass. And you know, coming from a background prior to that where we had static hen houses, where you you would have a lot of trouble trying to regenerate the, the the pasture around the house so with our system we can move the house up to the other end of the field and then reseed it and the grass grows amazingly because it's had chickens on it and it comes up like I think last year last summer we had to sort of top it three or four times it was growing so well do you get animals on to graze then that grass or you just keep uh, we, it? we 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 just top it because we, right. we don't have any um in any any other animals of ourselves we, we only sort of have a small area of, of land and yeah. uh, that's why the system can get quite interesting though isn't it where it works i think isn't it is if you then have a you know an animal that fundamentally should eat grass rather than grain that all too often we're feeding grain it feels like yeah that's where this uh i don't know very yeah, more variable farming is uh, yeah well we, is fascinating. we we are actually looking at some ideas with other working with other farms locally that would you know, pilot a sort of pasture cropping type of system with cows and chickens mm. and a chap i know who is a member of pasture for life he has a herd of cows and we're looking at ideas how we combine small numbers of chickens with his grazing plan so that yeah. the chickens can follow on behind the cows and uh, yeah poly polyface farm have you heard yes it's yeah. salatin yeah. isn't it yeah yes. I guess uh, i've watched a little video on that and that and that kind of symbiotic relationship between all the animals moving around the farm and uh, yeah it helps grow the grass the cows eat the grass and the cows only eat it down to a certain level so then there's another I don't know if it's then the sheep that eat it down to the next level and then yeah, put the chickens back in and they poo on it and it grows. You think yeah. that can be a fantastic yeah. system. And I think we're just learning, I guess, about some of the you know, the way that we used to farm, I guess, and the benefits of it. So when they're not foraging for the worms, because I can imagine they must surely, uh, you know, 13,000 birds. There, yeah, can't be, yeah. there can't be many worms left, I guess, <laughs> after day day two. Uh, yeah, what do they what do they eat? Um, well, we, we have a very good feed supplier, which is um, Humphreys Feeds, who are right. based in Winchester. And Martin Humphrey, who's, I think, he's definitely the second generation, he might be the sort of third generation of that family to run that mill, is the sort of UK expert in hen diets. And wow. he, you know, formulates sort of special diets for all the sort of, um, you know, premium sort of brands in, in, in the industry. And we've worked with Martin to produce a special diet for our, our hens where it's sort of 70% local wheat and then we're adding in, um, alfalfa and uh, natural paprika and marigold right. to produce um, what we call a, a natural yolk. Okay, not to make it more flavoursome. The food are they? Are they, well, I, th- are they I think it. I mean, the feedback from our customers is that our eggs are. No, I meant, the, I, meant I meant the hens. Oh, I the hens. If they, if they particularly it, were saying, can we have it, a little bit looks, more? You know, yeah, I mean, it know, looks marginal. like um, the alfalfa gives. It looks like this sort of you know like a dark sort of oregano in yeah. in, in the feed. And the alfalfa is grown in France in the, on the opposite side of the Reem where they grow the champagne grape on the south side of the valley. They grow the alfalfa on the north side. Right. And it's this incredibly rich, um, sort of like, like a grass. But uh, for, it's what the organic guys use for their diet because they, they're not allowed to use any of the synthetic colorants, in, which is the industry standard to use what they call bio-equivalent dyes. Yeah. So you have... When we first started in, in the industry, going back twenty odd years ago, you, you were given a colour chart of 
from sort of bright orange through to sort of light yellow. And you would say where you wanted your yolk to be on the color chart. And that's achieved by a, a bioequivalent to paprika and a bioequivalent to like a marigold. Right. But they're, they're, they're manufactured dyes that go into the feed to produce the egg yolk color. Okay. And uh, yeah, we, we sort of looked at how they do it in the organic world with the alfalfa and thought, well, we'll do it naturally using the alfalfa and also extract of paprika and marigold. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the other element that goes in there is, is sunflower. So sunflower provides a protein level, uh, some of the protein, and it, it's got lots of good oils in it and things as well. Um, there is an element of, of soya in, in, in the diet. Soya is obviously some ways a sort of you know, bit of a sort of uh, you know, bugbear for people. But uh, I think it depends where it's grown, doesn't it? Can you do you know where that soya comes from, or is that? Oh yeah, I mean, I think generally it comes from either the US or, or, or South America. Right. Okay. Um, that would be the next bit to get right then, I suppose, because I know in the in the you know soy milk product sometimes, but it's all European soya, which is nice now that I think we're trying to almost get to the point where uh yeah you can get that provenance all the way through the supply chain i suppose yeah, but yeah uh, yeah one to to, to, to chat with the, the pellet makers um but then your eggs are not organic is that right no we, we we're not organic and that that was again it was something we have looked at and you know the uh i think the you know the differential on on, on the feed is, is is massive for for you know free range ours it's getting on for sort of 300 pound a ton whereas the Organic feed now is pro- probably sort of four four fifty. Some rations maybe closer to five hundred pound a, a ton. So there's a big difference in the cost of the feed. And we don't produce the organic wheat in this country. Generally, the organic wheat comes from uh, Ukraine is the typical origin. And the you know the organic soya either comes from China or India. Uh, the preference I think these days is to get it from India because there are questions about uh, you know how organic chinese soya is but uh, <laughs> there's uh, you know this i don't think this you know it's a it's a difficult one because for, for my mind I'd, I'd rather have the diet be more at least you know we know 70 percent of the diet of the hens is local um and i think that it's yeah. important, and, it? and you made the decision not to use the synthetic, you know, the the kind of additions. Or you talked about the yolk color, which is fascinating. So yeah, to use what was it, sunflower seeds and and margarine, or whatever. Yeah, alfalfa, alfalfa, uh, yeah, ma- marigold, right, yeah. Mar- marigold, you know, marigold. Yeah. So you decided um, to go the natural kind of uh, yeah. yeah and pap- paprika is the red element, and right. then marigold is the the yellow gold element. Yeah. Okay. And, well, uh, and, I, and this is why I think people should always just work with their suppliers because that makes much more sense to me than going you know organic for the sake of organic if it means that your ingredients are coming from around the world yeah if you can use you know local wheat but still do the bits that make sense by not using the the synthetic kind of colorants but use natural ingredients i think yeah. that's why ideally you want to get as close to your kind of supplier for stuff as possible i guess yeah, don't you? So, yeah makes makes, yeah, makes I mean, a lot we, of sense we could probably if we just went for a standard diet we could probably save sort of 50 pound a ton which would be thousands of pounds a year yeah. <laughs> but uh, i think it's important to sort of uh, you know, to do it as, as naturally as we can. And the feedback from customers is, is that the eggs are very, very good as a yeah. result. So. I've I've only ever heard great things. So, yeah, <laughs> we'll chat about that <laughs> offline later as yeah. to, uh, yeah, for, uh, for supply. Um, so 
at night, all the hens kind of do they automatically go back into the house? Do you have to go around with a big well, stick and encourage them? To going let the back foxes to out, the majority, what you what we do is the the hens have four feeds throughout the course of the day. Right. So the first feed is about half an hour after they wake up, so they have a sort of bit of a stretch. They're still and, in bed uh, at this point. They're inside. Yeah, I mean, some hens they they tend to lay eighty percent of the eggs in the first sort of quarter or third of the day. So some hens will immediately go and lay an egg as they get up and others will be, you know, given... An egg is an egg is produced every sort of 25 hours by a hen. So One, one per day per hen? Well, 25 or? hours. This means right. that okay. a, a hen's going to have a day off every so often. Every, yeah. if, if, if the cycle is 25 hours. And it, it, it's one of those things where, I mean, our, our hens will typically, when they're going well, produce at around about 90%. So 3,000 hens will produce about 3,000, so 4,000 hens would produce about 3,500 eggs a, a, a day. So some of them are going to have, have a day off. And the ones, first, first thing in the morning, some of them, because they've probably just had a day off, they're then desperate to get in and lay an egg. The others will have a scratch round and uh, eat, eat, eat. I mean, you know, they all get really excited when the first feed goes round. You then have a few hours the second feed and these days we then have quite a big gap till the uh, the first feed in the afternoon and the gap is to mimic um what they've observed that birds do in the wild so if you have a bird table and you've got the time to examine when the birds come to the bird table and when they eat the most birds naturally eat later more and later in the day they like to eat early in the day so but they don't they're not so interested in eating through the middle part of the day and that's probably because that's where they're sort of more being more active and less sort of fake, you know, they've already got something in their belly. But then it's really important to give them the final feed a, a good sort of hour or so before they go to bed. So we time our last feed of the day as the sort of, you know, it's getting towards dusk. So that'll encourage them to, to come in to feed and then they'll be nice and full. You want a nice full crop um, for when they roost but there's going back to the characters there's always a few that are like two fingers to you I'm not going in so you can particularly if it's a full moon and you go up there in the summer and it's a full moon and it's sort of quarter past 10 at night there'll still be birds hanging around sort of as we say having a cocktail party on the veranda sort of and you have to sort of sometimes just go in and actually physically go come on mate you, you, you've got to go in now yeah. because otherwise if if you if you're left out overnight, then that's when the fox can get you. Right. <laughs> okay. So literally, daylight hours is what what decides the timings of that. Then presumably earlier in the winter, later in the summer, as to when they're let in and let yeah. Out. And it, at the moment, because the days are lengthening, we're we're moving their day forward because in in the winter we don't want to keep them up. You know, in in a on a dark evening, we want them to come in, have their sort of supper, uh, and then wind down and settle down so the lights in the winter will go on probably sort of four o'clock in, in in the morning maybe 4 30 in the morning we're sort of moving from four till it's closer to five now that they're getting up and then the lights are getting longer at the end of the day but the i mean the the interesting thing is if, if you go back to the 1960s before this had really been worked out the uk would produce very few eggs in the winter Right. So our eggs would be imported in, in the winter from countries with a, a warmer climate and a, a longer day cycle. And, and of course, 
now we take it completely for granted that we have a steady supply of eggs all year round. And it, it's to do with the hens needing to have sort of 14 or 15 hours of, of light per day. Okay. When you're in midsummer, they're naturally getting 16 hours of, of light. And uh, So if, if they just followed normal hour kind of daylight hours, in essence, they wouldn't produce the egg. Is it, why is that? It's not the light. Well, they, 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 they would naturally switch off when, when, the, when it gets uh, to sort of t 10 hours light or something, they would naturally want to switch off. Uh, and it's nature saying that it's winter, it's not going to be a good time to have a clutch of chicks or whatever. And uh, okay. it, it, it's brilliant. It's, it? uh, <laughs> Love nature, it's so clever. And why do they lay one every day in the wild? They wouldn't, they would lay a few well, every day. And... I think if, if, I mean, there, if you go back historically, you'd probably have hens that only laid an egg every other day, and you often hear. Still People. a lot of babies, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why so? Are they just particularly motivated to uh, continue their well, existence? I, I think if you look at little sort of fluffy chicks, they're pretty vulnerable. So if you're a hen and you're going to sit on a, a dozen eggs and hatch them out, the chances of those making it to maturity right. are probably quite slim. So And so how often, in, in thinking you know, back in time, I suppose, in the wild, they would, how long does it take to go from lay an egg to I've got a chick? So I'm going to lay another egg. So, well, I I think if you look at the you know the the best before date on you know on hen eggs is is 28 days. So I don't I don't think the actual sort of formation of the chick starts till sort of 30 days plus. Okay. So you know, what they're doing, that when they're guarded by saying a, your best before date is 28 days from from the date of lay, they're guarding against the fact that that egg might have got fertilized and the fact that you don't want to find there's a chick in it. I guess what I find amazing is just that they have that ability naturally to produce an egg every day. I just find it, it, it seems like a bit overkill really, isn't it? They would never really yeah, need that, I suppose. Yeah, but I, I think the, what they call the a hybrid hen has been bred, selectively bred over years to, to produce at that time scale. But even a more traditional breed will, will still probably lay an egg Every sort of uh, twenty-seven or twenty-eight hours. Wow! Um, but I mean, I've got kids; they're hard work. I don't know why you'd why you'd <laughs> want to be able to create a new one so quickly. It's beyond me. But um, handy though, isn't it? Because they make a lovely omelette or cake. So <laughs> yeah. so bless them for it. Um, and and talking yeah. around this size thing, am I right in saying then that this is very different for eggs than it is for is it is it, what is it broilers that we eat? Is that what the one? Yeah, bro bro broilers are the the table bird. The table bird, fine. And they're kept in smaller flocks. Is that right? Um, bro broiler, they would be. I mean, a high a high end free free range flock of, of broilers would would maybe be done in in a house of a thousand birds in a sort of free range system but they would they would only be kept till sort of 70 or 80 days of age before they go to the table yeah whereas our, our birds are 16 week old when they arrive from the rearers so they're already sort of double the age of uh, a table bird and the the intensive broiler birds that are reared in in massive sheds are, are reared in tens of thousands of numbers and would only be sort of five or six weeks old when they uh, go to the table. Yeah. So I guess that's the image I'm thinking about. It's kind of the big sheds, and I thought, yeah, there was there was thousands of those as well. But it's very different for a free-range broiler then. They tend to have smaller flock sizes even than hen eggs. Uh, hen, yeah, like egg hens. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it would depend on 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 the farm. I mean, I think the reason that you keep them in smaller flocks is to produce a steady flow of product to spread it because you you want to if you're producing the high-end free-range table bird you don't want to have four thousand one week and none the next week so you you would have sort of say you know 20 houses of the thousand and then you can have a rotation whereby you've got a thousand birds eat each week okay. that are ready to go to the well, market. I'm going to do a chicken episode one day, so let's let's stick to eggs so we don't get too yeah, far I, It's not my area of expertise. I appreciate that. And I, yeah, and just... I have been learning a bit about it lately, you know, in conjunction with sort of learning about these regenerative ideas to do birds with beef because it might be that, it, that uh, it's a better system to have birds that go to table than birds to produce eggs because if you've got laying hens out in the pasture with the cows they might well lay their eggs all over the field yeah, which under a cow's not would last long, is it? <laughs> be wasted because the eggs have to be sort of clean and well you know laid in a nice sort of tidy place for them to yeah. be uh, class a gradable eggs okay that makes perfect sense so i'm nearly there around my questions yeah. of uh, you know how they live but so but you mentioned earlier so inside once they're they're inside at night whatever they they basically they they sit there you say they lay their eggs in the morning, Ma- the majority, yeah, the majority, 80% of the eggs would be laid in the first third of the day. And then, so if we do, we do typically two egg collections a day by hand. If, if we are having sort of three and a half thousand eggs, we'd probably get getting on for 3,000 eggs by sort of mid morning. It takes a couple of hours to collect those all and put them on the trays. And then you'd maybe get another sort of four or five hundred eggs in the afternoon or by by the end of the day. I mean, they would be laid not necessarily at two o'clock, but between sort of 11 and five. So right. when okay. Sort of... Super productive. So uh, the rest of the time inside the house, and is there, I guess, happy hens lay the best eggs uh, within reason. So the other <laughs> thing, you mentioned swings. What, 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 what other things are in the design yeah, I mean, of a hen house that goes on? We, we have of... um, pe- pecking blocks, which... Uh, they, they like to, you know, that's like a sort of something for them to sort of peck, peck on. We have like rope, ropes dangling down, which again, they, they like to sort of play with. And we've got some uh, sort of tubular sort of swings that uh, we, we put up when back in the sort of big bird flu crisis a couple of winters ago, we all had to legally lock our hens up. We weren't allowed to let them out from the band came in in the run up to Christmas. And then they weren't in the Avon Valley which was deemed to be quite a high risk area because of all the wild swans, etc. I think we were allowed to let them out about mid-March. I mean, some areas of the country where they were deemed to be less risk were a few weeks before they were sort of end of February, I think. But uh, when they were all shut up, we you know, tried to sort of enrich their environment you know more to to give them more entertainment really and And the objective of that is yeah you know i know we talked about whether you can judge if a hen is happy or not but basically (laughs) you know happy hen lays a better egg yeah yeah i mean i think it's animal welfare i think it's difficult to you don't we want don't want to sort of humanize an animal too much it needs uh, to be thought of in terms of more as being sort of able to exhibit natural behavior and and uh, to not be sort of any way stressed or, or threatened or um, an emotion like happiness. I, I think the bird, you could argue the birds are very happy when the feed goes round and 
they're the first one there and they get the best bit. Yeah, that, or that been, worm, that red yeah, worm. Yeah, the worm, I think the worm is definitely a, a champagne Surely. moment for the hen. And yeah. They will fight over the worm. <laughs> you, you, you definitely think <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, and then we were chatting about this a little bit earlier when you showed me around the, the sort of packing house. So the, the other thing that has an impact on the hen, uh, sorry, on the egg, yeah. is the age of the bird. So yeah, big, yeah. older birds lay bigger eggs. Uh, is that right? And when they, so what age do they arrive? So we, we our, our birds, which we call pullets when they arrive yeah, at, at 16 week old, they're, they're reared by Humphreys, our feed supplier, who last year won the um, feed, pullet rearer of the year awards. So the sort of Oscars of chicken rearing. Wow, were you there? <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't there. Missed out. There. But uh, it's nice to know that your pullets are reared by the very best possible people. And obviously, we know that they're getting the best feed in rear as well as once they get to the farm. And they arrive in, in, in 16 week, week old. We've usually had about three weeks to clean, clean the house, make any repairs to uh, and dis, disinfect it and uh, get it all ship shape for, for the new birds. And then when, when they first arrive, their, their, their combs aren't developed. So going back to the red combs, you, you wouldn't be able to tell if they had a red comb because the comb is only just starting to sort of develop on the bird. And that, that's the sort of classic pullet. They're probably still about 25, 20% off their mature weight. So we concentrate on can't get, giving them a sort of really calm, you know, spending time with them to get them familiar with their house, making them calm and encouraging them to eat well, which you do by stimulating the, the feed. So we, we turn the feed on at extra times during the day to, to get them used to the, the feeding system and encourage them to eat. And we're aiming all the time to get them to the best possible weight so that when they start laying the eggs, they're physically capable of sustaining those 300 eggs that they will produce over their sort of commercial lifetime. If you have a flock that comes into lay before they're physically mature or physically able to do then that's when you get lots of stress problems and issues later down the track because the the bigger physically stronger birds will naturally form a, a sort of gang against the weaker sort of less physically strong birds so we're always looking at what's the average weight of the pullet and what's the evenness and we aim for sort of 90 percent evenness so they're very uniform and they've all got a good weight and the way we stop them from actually laying the egg too soon is by controlling the light and obviously when you have birds in like we did last may that that's a, a big challenge because outdoors is 16 hours of, of light and uh, nature's blurring away and telling them lay 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 yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. Thing. so what, have you got blackout blinds and stuff we, we and, have uh... curtains but they they still know and mm. you know with with the the birds last spring we we they came in at a really good weight. We did get the weight on quickly. And then we just thought, right, we just got to let them go for it because it, we, it, when you have your curtains up, you restrict the airflow into the house. And you, the air quality in the house is really important. Yeah. So, yeah, we just let, let them sort of get on with it. And they've done really, really well. Just literally by opening the curtains and saying, o Opening okay, the curtains. and Nature uh, takes its course. Let, 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 let the sort of light and the fresh air in and... Uh, 
Yeah. Okay, interesting. <laughs> um, I'm going to dive off of um, chickens a little bit before some people uh, go. Oh my god, this is uh, this is super detailed because yeah, this wasn't. This, <laughs> yeah, I could waste and, and the to whole give, afternoon to give you a rest <laughs> as well. Although we're going to come back to it, if I've got some other questions. But um, how long have you been doing this? Because you had a very different career before. Because yeah. it sounds like you know you were almost yeah born in a in a, in a hen shed. But can you talk a little bit yeah. about yeah. Well, what, we, we had a, the farm when I was a, a child had about sort of fifty hens in a little barn and. Uh, you know that that was sort of just to produce a few eggs for uh, the family and the in those days the farm had about a dozen people working on it so how did you end up in london selling kites then how did that happen yeah, yeah, the kite. <laughs> yeah well uni- university in Lon- london um doing a business course started you know well i had a bicycle which is how i got around in london I used to ride past this shop that uh, had uh, these amazing things in the window and I sort of stopped one day and they were selling a combination of juggling balls and kites and they had a little TV in this shop and on the TV was a chap on a beach in Cornwall um, doing a hundred foot leap behind latched onto a kite I thought this looks pretty good fun and there were these things called flexifoils which uh, it turned out a couple of my mates of mine had seen this as well so we all bought these flexifoil kites and we used to go down at the weekend to hilltops in Dorset in the New Forest and that and sort of leap across uh, these things with these kites and it was it was quite sort of physically damaging and it, it wasn't particularly well one of my mates who's uh, you know a chef these days in London he actually landed on his head and sort of Wow. I don't know if he's ever been quite the same since. But, what, he's a uh, chef. Just kidding, chefs. <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> he's a very good chef, but yeah. he, I think it slightly it put him. If you're a bit crazy, it slightly put him off the kite, and I, I sort of thought I got to do something more productive with this, and started um, the got into the the kite buggying, and uh, to afford that as a student, I had to work in the shop. So I got the job in the shop. Ended up dropping out of being a student and running three shops for this chap and selling all these kites and rollerblades and juggling balls and uh, skateboards and stuff and uh, then thought I could actually do this myself and uh, two, two, two friends and I got together and raised a little bit of money and opened this mad shop on Portobello Road which uh, was uh, yeah called the London Beach Store and uh, we opened that in 97 which was just uh, just when they were doing the Notting Hill film. So we uh, were, our, our sort of signage was actually in, in the film. We got compensated for uh, having to shut our doors while they filmed. And uh, the uh, How the, long did you have to shut for? Oh, I, I think a couple of afternoons okay. or, or something. And, I, mean, I bet Paul, they were busy days, weren't they, as far well, as the sales figures showed? Or oh, we would have <laughs> well, sold a lot of kites that yeah, day. I mean, once the word got out that uh, there was this compensation going from this film company, you've never seen so many stall holders on yeah, Portobello Road. Right? Yeah, People going, had their oh, sort yeah. of grandfather out with a table with two oranges on yeah, it. Yeah, rainy Tuesday, that's always the busiest day of the week. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> 1,500 yeah. kites we'd have sold. Yeah. But I mean, there was, there was a, weirdly, there, I mean, there was a connection to the food industry even back in those days, because one of my partners, his mother was um, Rose Gray, who ran the River Cafe. Yeah. And that was when um, I think Jamie was working there, Oliver, and uh, um, I think Hugh Fernley was also there. And there was some, you know, we used to go and have our um, business meetings at the River Cafe, thanks to. Uh, Rosie and Ruth. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they, you know, they all sort of put a, put a little bit of uh, investment in. And uh, everyone said we were completely mad. We were going to fail. But we actually made a profit in our first year. And uh, for 
quite a long while didn't look back when we, we were selling all these amazing kites, which uh, we were the first shop in London to sell kite surf equipment and used to sort of sell these things with um, just sort of two lines and a disclaimer of like 50 pages saying, don't use this because you're going to die, yeah. basically. Nice. And it, it did all get safer, but at the same time, the um, internet came along and uh, we uh, eventually became the sort of expensive showroom for... Uh, you know, these, these online shops and... Uh, yeah, that's frustrating. How long did you do it for? Oh, that that was 10 years. 10 and years. Our, our rent went up by sort of four or five times. And, yeah. uh, you know, we had, after about seven or eight years, we had to move off the sort of main strip and into a side street. And that was still sort of 65,000 a year plus the rates. So you're talking 100,000 a year before you've sold a kite and paid anybody. Yeah, that's so, a lot of kites. <laughs> okay so uh what year did you come out of uh, beginning of 2008 right so and and, uh, and what was the motivation yeah, then to... having sort of got married in 2007 and uh thought uh, yeah we're uh, gonna be in a bit of stuck here we've lost our business and we've got to sort of relocate and uh yeah thought we'll come back down to the new forest and uh was your wife from the new forest as well or? no she, she's from lincolnshire and okay. uh, well half the... mauritian so uh, okay not um, the city center though because it'd be hard to lure people out of london sometimes <laughs> it'd be lovely let's go and live in the country but uh yeah at least you, you didn't you didn't have that challenge but yeah i mean uh, we, we, you know, i had the new forest connection and uh the initial plan w- was to do the you know teach kite surfing down down here i had a friend who still runs the um you know, the best kite surf school in, in, in the country at Portland. Okay. Um, Power Academy, chat called uh, Spencer down there, and he, he got me onto one of their instructor courses, and we were going to do you know, these these kite lessons and organise kite surfing holidays to Mauritius. And, of course, uh, 2008 financial crisis, the, uh, the, we, the bigger world had slightly different plans, but what was going very well was the, uh, the egg sign and... Uh, uh, they needed some help with that. And so hand- this is through your family? Was it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, what, yeah. So what was it? This is, you were brought up on a farm as a kid, were you? Or? Brought, brought, it's a, it is a sort of very complicated family story, which we, again, could spend a lot of time on. But effectively, essentially, it was my stepfather who had the farm. It was sort of when I was there in the 70s, it was about 500 acres and dairy in the 70s, arable in the 80s, fruit growing in the 90s. Uh, and then it all got sort of had been gradually sold off over this time and uh, the last 40 acres was let's try the free range thing and free range is growing and uh, yeah when they and I moved down from London the contract had just begun with the Hampshire schools for the eggs and uh, mum couldn't cope with the need to write out in spreadsheets and invoices and of course I'd been doing that and also, you know, I was able to help with all the deliveries and so, yeah, got sucked into uh, Egg World, which uh, was not really the plan. I was going to say, that's <laughs> quite a contrast to <laughs> kite surfing school in Mauritius. Yeah, it? So, yeah. The, the, uh, yeah, the line I came up with at the time, I went to my first sort of pig and poultry fair and 
talking to people. They said, oh, what have you been doing? Well, kite surfing. Oh, yeah. And what's the connection to chickens then? And I said, well, one's, you know, flightless birds and the other one's birdless flight. Which... Yes. <laughs> a, a, a loose link. <laughs> <laughs> a loose link. Yeah. It, it, it was meant to be. So, think, um, yeah. yeah did, so you came into the business then to help uh, develop yeah, it. Yeah, and, and, it, and it, it was sort of just the 4,000 hens then. And the contract, as I say, for Hampshire schools was a couple of months old and, you know, mum was very frustrated that she wasn't getting paid for the eggs, but bid food 3663 weren't getting proper invoices. And uh, yeah, so uh, okay. I sort of helped, so helped much, on that. Front. Much as that may have been, uh, I can see the challenge of thinking, yeah, hot beach in Mauritius or this. <laughs> uh, it, it seems now that you're an exceptionally happy, uh, yeah, hen farmer. Any, any regrets or are you glad you got involved? Oh yeah, I'm very very glad to to have got involved. I mean, you, when you grow up on well, even you know for five years we lived on on the farm when I was a child, and you know I was I had a sort of free range childhood, really just going off with the dog, and uh, it's a miracle I wasn't sort of you know killed several times falling off silage clamps and. Uh, you know, nearly lost a hand running a string on the back of a trailer on the back of a tractor and <laughs> all these sort of things. But you know, you, you, this is the sort of peril of being free range. You, you come up against danger, don't you? But uh, you know that, you know that sort of experience always made me sort of connected to farming. And then we moved to the new forest from, you know, where we just sort of go out on the forest all, all, all day and sort of build a little campfire and cook sausages with a friend and. You know, try and catch a fish in a forest stream and stuff. So. Yeah, nice. So nice now to be able to recreate that, presumably a bit for your kids. Compared to oh, like Portobello Road, they're now yeah. in the new forest and can. Uh, yeah, I yeah. think you know, I've got I've got good friends with with kids in London, and there are, there are lots of advantages in terms of museums and everything's kind of there. But uh, you know, at the same time, I think the, the country has so much to, to offer kids and uh, yeah no I agree yeah, I lived in London so. for 10 years and I loved it and uh, yeah I miss I certainly miss the buzz of you know restaurants and bars being busy every night of the weekend because yeah, down, down yeah. in Bournemouth it's uh, you know it's a Friday Saturday Sunday kind of trade really which can be a little bit depressing and then it's also seasonal with the winter and the summer but yeah I no, love London yeah. however it is nice to live 60 seconds from the ocean so well congratulations <laughs> on the uh, on the career change for you yeah. and that sort of leads into one of the other topics that I wanted to talk about is, is what happens to the uh, to the hens in sort of retirement so yeah yeah, um, yeah. W- where do they go well the lucky few i guess go go to people who've said to us in the run-up that we need a few hens for the, the garden the fox has had our hens when are your hens going there's always you know some that uh, get sort of re rehomed but uh, the practicalities of rehoming sort of three or four thousand chickens in an afternoon are uh, not not particularly easy so they go to a processor who is involved in, in you know in, in taking hens from lots of farms and uh, in the majority they they say in the majority of the case of the free range hens where in the past you know they when we first started they used to go into the sort of pet foods and that yep. sort of thing but now they they have a market for them into the um, curry trade and sort of the that that type type of product but. Uh, we did a like a pilot last year with some chefs in London where we were getting the, the spent some of the spent hems to some of the, the restaurants and the chefs were um, doing these amazing kind of slow cooked dishes and really bringing out the flavour of the meat and it, it, I think it's got a lot of potential yeah. if you've got the right chef who 
you can get the hen too in the right way. And I mean, the one of the, one of the chaps says to me, you know, there's more energy involved in short, slow cooking this, but relative to the other hens I'm buying and the flavour that we're getting from this meat, as long as it's cooked well enough to get tender, it's it's a really mm. good product. Yeah, and, so we looked uh, at this a little bit with cows in the restaurants and uh, using dairy cows, so older cows. There's an issue with BSE and the timing. So I think it's, is it four years maybe or three and a half years, something yeah, like that? Yeah, where th- the, 36 months. Yeah, or... that's right. Yeah, and then you're not supposed to be able to um, put them into the food chain. But actually, yeah. the, the dairy cows were, were older and were full of flavour and cooked in yeah. the right way were really good. But I'd never really thought about the same thing in hens until I was... You know, doing some research a couple of days ago. So I, I like the idea of that. So if, if you just cook them in the traditional way, presumably too tough, uh, not tender well, enough. Well, but if, if you, you go s- if you go back to the sort of fifties, sixties, prior to the regis- you know, the, the current sort of legislation on slaughter and so on, the the hen producer would sell the eggs. Or sorry, the hens towards the end of the flock, they would take hens out and sell them to the local butcher, who would boil them and sell them as, as boilers. And so the meat was already sort of tenderised by the butcher. And people in the culture then knew how to treat that, that meat. Mm. But you know, that, that has been slightly knocked on, on the head by the fact I can't just sell my chicken to the local butcher. Why but, don't they sell those anymore? Well, they, this, this is it. This is you know, something that could be revitalised. And you know, I, I know in Gloucestershire there's a farm i think it's called fur farm who are working on a sort of mobile abattoir project and apparently one of these mobile abattoirs could uh, process 200 hens in a day so there may be an opportunity going forward where if we could have one of these mobile abattoirs in hampshire dorset that worked with farms here and it, it's a big problem for farmers to get animals to say sherborne or bridport where the nearest abattoirs are and I think you talked to Jodie Schechter, who a lot of people I knew used to use his abattoir, but that's yeah, he closed no it. Yeah, which I was surprised by because I've spoken to a few people who say that the yeah. abattoir is the problem. But yeah, he yeah. said he couldn't so make it viable. A mobile abattoir could do all sorts of animals for different farmers, but it could also potentially process two hundred chickens for someone like ourselves. So that towards the end of a flock, maybe you could do several batches of hens that would be much more. Because I can't, again, I can't deliver a thousand chickens to one restaurant, whereas 50 chickens could go to four restaurants yeah. quite quite easily. So, mm. yeah, it seems crazy that it might be a bit like the goats when I interviewed them. You yeah. find out how many yeah. billy goats are being sort of shot at birth. It seems bonkers that there's these, you know, hundreds of thousands, I guess, of, of uh, yeah, hens um, going to waste. When but they, yeah, I mean, they're not, I mean, they, the thing is, they're not going to, to waste as such now. They are going into the food chain. Yeah. Um, but the big thing is, I mean, when when we first started, you you had to pay to have the hens taken away. So when when it was just going into pet food, you as the farmer had to pay to have your hens taken away. So it was maybe twenty five p a bird. If you had eight thousand birds, that that was sort of two thousand pounds just to have your hens taken away at the end of the flock. Nowadays, in some at some points when the market's been good, we've actually got getting on for 50 pence a bird but in the last couple of years that's dropped down to about 20p a bird and if you're under a contract where your all your eggs are sold for you etc the typical figure in the free range budget is 5p a bird so the farmer who has those 16,000 or 30,000 hens that 
he's initially bought for four pounds, five pounds a, a bird, is getting a, a very small return, which even if we could change that from 5p to 40p would make a huge difference to his turnaround cost because the point when people go bust in free range is that point where they've had a, a flock out maybe that hasn't done particularly well and then before they see any income they've got to pay for the next flock of hens and wait six to eight weeks before any commercial eggs are produced so cash flow wise they, so anything that you could add in terms of value at the end of the flock and you know find restaurants and chefs that could take you know to put more value on on, on that product would, would be mm. no know. i think it's, it's it sounds fascinating actually yes yeah. so I'll, I'll again i'll speak to my chefs and maybe we can have a little uh yeah play i guess the abattoir is the problem really at the moment isn't yeah it? i mean i i think i mean the i mean the the company i mean the company that take our hens i know they are supplying hens to to some restaurants in london um through food chain, you know, food chain, yeah. the the, yeah. the buying sort of app. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just be so, interesting to try it. a bit like mutton, I suppose, isn't it? It's just a more mature kind of uh, yeah meat and and see see the difference. But yeah. yeah, chefs love having a little tinker and a little play and seeing if it works better in certain dishes and yeah. why and all that yeah. kind of stuff. So, okay. Uh, yeah, something that I will definitely look into. Um, and the reason that other people would, in essence, adopt them is you you don't want them because they're presumably not laying an egg a day by this point. Is that the reason? And but they're yeah, still laying they, well, they, a few a week. They, they they still lay, but the I mean. The, the delay will often have declined to sort of below 80 percent right um which was which would be fine but it, it what happens is because the eggs get so much bigger uh, an egg the the shell of an egg is typically the same weight whether it's a tiny pullet egg or an extra large egg so you've got the same amount of shell it's just spread thinner so as your average egg weight goes up from sort of 40 grams, 50 grams, 60 grams, and towards the end of the flock, the egg weight could be 65, 70 grams, that shell is spread very thinly. And the shell becomes a lot more breakable. So the, the, the eggs that are getting broken in the process can go as high as 15, 20% in the last few weeks of, of laying. And for someone like ourselves that does all our grading, handling, in turn, we do it all ourselves. We can save the maximum amount of eggs, but if you're producing eggs under contract that go to a third party to pack them, as soon as they get seconds of ten to fifteen percent, they will say, "We, we, you know, unless you can pull out all those eggs at the farm, we're not going to take any more because they they need to put a pallet of eggs through their machine, so seven hundred and fifty dozen eggs through their machine in five minutes flat, and if 10% of those eggs are breaking. You can imagine the mess of 750 eggs, 750 dozen eggs going through a machine in five minutes and 10% or more are breaking. That's a huge amount of liquid egg and time yeah. lost. And yeah. Makes perfect sense. Uh, and I had absolutely no idea that the egg always yeah, weighed the same or the shell, sorry, always yeah. weighed the same and it just yeah. got thinner. That makes sense. And that machine you were showing me earlier, which was this phenomenal, what was it What was it called? The one with like lots of little sucky caps? That, that, that's a MOBA 2000. A MOBA which, 2000. Yeah. That always reminds me of 2000 AD, the comic or something. I will put a photo on the website for people <laughs> so you should have a look at that. But yeah, how does that, uh, that, that was in essence to grade the eggs. So I, I, now that you're... Yeah, well, no, that was a sort of state-of-the-art machine in the 70s, I suppose. Yeah. 
yeah, it's, it's got it's lots of chains and cogs and all that kind of stuff, and it picks up every every egg and weighs it. Uh, as you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, you really wouldn't want hundreds of broken eggs going through that because it looked like it it was you know fairly uh, mechanical, I yeah. suppose, or even if it was computerized, you don't want eggs all over your stuff. So do they do they break in that? in that process or do they get caught well, before that well we, we we've got sort of three levels we 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 because we're, we're hand collecting the eggs at the farm we can take out maybe sort of half a percent when, or two percent three percent there depending on the age of the hens and then when we're actually grading and packing we've got three points in the process there where we can also take out weak shells and bad eggs right so we we don't break too many but you know we had old hens that were finishing up over Christmas and uh, we, we needed to keep them till Christmas time because of the demand for big eggs at Christmas. So the, they were producing the eggs that got through were lovely big eggs, but it was taking us probably three times as long to grade those eggs because of the extra time and care it took to make sure that what came out and went into the trays and the packs to the customers wasn't going to break. Yeah. And... Uh, that, that, that's the big difference. And that's why, you know, a big company that just wants to put a whole pallet of eggs through a machine that can do a pallet in five minutes, which takes us half an hour to an hour to do that same amount of, of eggs, even if we're going at full rate. The, 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 that means for us that would, when the eggs are old, it's going to take us three three hours to do what should take us an hour, if you okay. see what I mean. Yeah, so, no, it all makes perfect sense. Yeah. Okay, uh, and then going back to the sales side, so you mentioned schools, we know you do bars and restaurants, but you've also, and, and some of the local deli shops, you've also opened your own shop now. Is that yeah, right? How long yeah. ago was that, and, and yeah, why? Yeah. what made you decide to get into the retail space direct? Uh, there was a number of reasons why we did the shop. For, yeah, it's called Fluff It's Home, which uh, is honey, oil, milk, and eggs. <laughs> so, yeah, that's... Uh, I call it an anagram, but I was corrected. It's an acronym, but uh, that's why you have people proof your PR material. <laughs> yeah, very true. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the shop. The shop was uh, partly the fact that our regular market, farmers' market in Salisbury, was, was very popular, and it, it, we do that twice a week, Tuesday and Saturday at the Salisbury Charter Market. We've done that for about five years now. I think it is four or five years. Um, we, we took that stall on from a long-standing customer of ours who sold eggs there for 10 years previously. And so we, we already had an established market there, but uh, we combined that with selling local honey and uh, meringues and, and local preserves and that sort of thing. And we thought, well, if we can do this twice a week in Salisbury, why shouldn't we do it in a local town where we don't have any customers already and we can start selling exciting things like local cheese and local milk. And, you know, being members of New Forest Mark, Hampshire Fair, Dorset Food and Drink, we, we've met all these other wonderful producers through that. And it's just like, wow, we could sell our eggs and some of their stuff too. And uh, it's all going to be local. You know, you look at people like the pig and how much the local story resonates with people. And... We just thought we'll take a gamble. It's going to be a failure if it's a failure and we've only signed for three years. It's in a side street. Rent compared to £65,000 in London is £8,000 a year. The rates, it's below the rate radar because it's too small. It's only 450 square foot. And uh, if it all goes wrong, we'll call it our office. Okay. And, uh, yeah. when, when did you open it? 
uh, just before Easter two years ago. Okay, great. How's and, it going? Uh, yeah, it's been great. I mean, yeah. it, it, this year Christmas was thirty uh, percent up. I mean, a huge credit to Bay, my wife, who makes the most amazing sort of hampers and gift boxes, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it, it, it's really popular little local food shop. But yeah. All, well, idea built on local stuff within sort of 30 miles and uh, yeah love it i'm gonna go and check it out i've seen you putting some posts on instagram we'll come to your social social (laughs) handles in a minute but i always Uh, think oh wow you've got some amazing stuff there which is really good so um so where are you going to go from here then what's what how do you see the future panning out for fluffets what's next well i mean the 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 challenge this year is is to produce more eggs we've uh you know in the past we've we've been you know having the problem having too many eggs at times but uh, we're trying to make sure now that that doesn't happen but at the same time to keep up with with demand and uh, the, we've got more hens arriving ne- ne- next week and then we've got an empty house that more hens can go into at some point there again and then hopefully we've got a hen house on another farm that we're going to rent uh, in sort of May this 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 year that uh, would would give us a bit more flexibility would give us three sites to right. have have the hens and uh, yes I guess it's quite challenging in the fact there's a lead in isn't there it's not you, you can't flex your supply if, if demand yeah. flexes on a week by week basis or a really I mean, big contract comes you're, you're looking at twenty weeks lead time just to order the hens right and get them onto the farm and and then another four or five weeks before they lay an egg so. Uh, effectively yeah, half a year it's at least much. for the six months yeah. and that's, that's complicated isn't it you know, so that, that's yeah, it's not pace. like you can be out knocking on doors going right oh i've got a great big contract great we supply you you've got to grow it gradually i suppose yeah it's like they, those those people that rang up this morning and uh, wanted sort of 850 boxes of 15 dozen it's sort of well for a start the price is completely wrong but you know you you couldn't just sort of produce those out of thin air it's, yeah. uh, but nowadays I mean, we, we only deal with one really good local wholesaler which is country fair yeah I know them. and then bid bid food who um do the hampshire schools eggs and then everything else we're, we're selling direct through our own vans and uh, sending up to to london using apc to to send the eggs to restaurants in london okay so we we, we you know i guess Five years ago, we were thinking we've got to have three or four wholesalers and that's the way to grow it. And we had three or four wholesalers and they don't pay you on time and they want, as the market for eggs drops in price, they want you to drop your price. And you've already agreed on a price that is just about workable, but you take 10p a dozen off that and uh, suddenly you, you know, your potential profit has disappeared into a lot yeah, food and drink in general tight margin game i think was there some stuff you learned from running because it, it you know it, it made me laugh when i saw that you in essence a that you ran a <laughs> kite surfing shop in london or somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but but b the fact that you were then in eggs were i think things... the, the, the the juggling elements of the because we also we sold juggling balls as well i think there was I can see how that there's a tie in there yeah, somewhere you don't want to be dropping the eggs <laughs> yeah but were there some transferable skills were there things that you think actually it was really useful that i did go uh, off and have that journey and that adventure because you could bring it back into the world of eggs yeah, I, I think just dealing with with, with people and customers and uh, present you know pre- presentation and uh, but I mean the, the lovely thing with the eggs is you see you know you're producing the product rather than produce, you know, selling something that someone else has produced even if even if you're 
you know, absolutely in love with this kite. Someone else has built it in Hawaii. And uh, you can never claim that, whereas having something like an egg that your hens have produced and then having a relationship with the people that are buying that where you see them every couple, you know, twi twice a week, or if you don't see them, you speak to them on the phone twice twice a week. And in a case, it's rare that people say, gosh, those eggs that you delivered last week were amazing. I had the best weekend with those eggs ever, <laughs> like they did with a kite. Yeah, but you know, we yeah. did have a letter from one of our cafes in January just saying, guys, the service at Christmas was fantastic. The eggs, we just love them and please keep doing what you do. And, you, you know, you don't always hear that, but you kind of know that if you weren't there, people would really miss you kind of yeah, thing. That's but, nice. Yeah, well, that was going to be my next question. and You've probably kind of answered it, but I guess, yeah, it's what when you wake up in the morning, you know, what makes it a good day? What's the greatest buzz? What's the kind of like, yay, today's going to be awesome. I guess it's the bit of the job that gives you the most reward. Yeah, well, I, I, I do really still quite enjoy packing the eggs really <laughs> putting <laughs> on a podcast starting yeah. with sort of four well i, I can't you know, i listen to the podcast when i'm doing the deliveries in in, in the van and uh, try, driving about the place but just you know working with a team of people you start with in the morning with four or five pallets of eggs that have come from the hen house and just turning that all into a something that can go into a shop and be sold the next day by a retailer or used in a busy kitchen that, that's a sort of lovely thing you're you know twice a week you're creating a whole batch of your own product and delivering it to hopefully happy customers yeah but uh, it, you know i also really enjoy my my morning when i do 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 the hens and just spend time with them the checking that everything's working because having you know, a fresh set of eyes at the hen house, you see something maybe the other chap wouldn't have seen. And I do all the adjustments on the feed clocks and checking temperatures and uh, checking, you know, this, 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 just that bit when you actually let them out in the morning and that they all go and you yeah. Think, yeah, that's what it's about. Yeah, nice. So. Okay, well, I need to come and join you one morning and, <laughs> yeah, uh, and, I mean, and see that. I'm side sorry we couldn't go there. No, to, but I'm going to come back. It, you're not. You're not too far yeah. away. Um, so people can go to Wimborne and they can buy them. They can go to yeah. their local, uh, you know, either either restaurants or uh, or farm shops. Um, you're also pretty active on social media though. So where should people go to follow your journey oh, yeah. and see what you're up to? Yeah. Well, I think we were probably the first um, first sort of chicken farm in the country to have a facebook page and uh, i can't say i do an awful lot with with facebook we put the odd, odd sort of video on there and then uh, we were quite early on with the twitter thing as well those are both at fluffits i think and then, and then instagram more recently which is at at fluffits as well i think okay. is that where you're more active on instagram it's probably where i see you but are they all pretty yeah much i mean flip instagram's a really nice sort of medium for uh showing off pictures of birds and mm. uh, showing uh, what you saw when you're out delivering the eggs and you stopped to walk the dogs or uh, Perfect, yeah. <laughs> that kind of Well, thing. look, you, you have so, fulfilled my uh, egg and hen geekiness <laughs> that's been sort of, you know, bubbling away yeah. inside me for ages. I now... I think I get it, which is brilliant. Uh, so thank you so yeah, much for sparing the time. I could probably sort of go on for a long time. Yeah, more, you but could, but, but people would be booing <laughs> at their radios. Um, so yes. yeah, good luck. We'll keep in touch. And I will put um, yeah links to your website and to your social on the website as well, humansofhospitality.co.uk. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. But thank you so much. It's uh, much appreciated, Ben. Cheers. Thanks, very good. 
Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. And remember that on the website, humansofhospitality.co.uk, every week we put on some show notes and some links through to the various websites or social media that are mentioned. And we also do a nice little breakdown of that week's conversations into specific topics. So you can jump through the podcast and just listen to some of the highlights if you wish. If you've not done so already, if you could leave us a review on iTunes or one of the other podcast players of your choice that would be hugely appreciated thank you so much and uh, we'll be out with another episode next monday